Micah 1, 1 through 6, 8 through 9, and 2, 1 through 13. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. For this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah, and it has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because... It is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots all our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach, one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you, dro you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, 
like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord at their head. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Luke 19, 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask... Father, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, that Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. Um, that is really good news uh, for us. Uh, that's really good for every, re really good news for every last one of us. Um, pray that you would persuade us that it's good news. And part of persuading us that it's good news is persuading us that we are by ourselves, we would be lost. And there from that vantage point to meet Jesus again, seeking us. Father, will you grant that? Um, and as we now come to a portion of your word that is really kind of difficult, um, give us grace both to see our lostness by ourselves and then to meet again Jesus seeking us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. Um, will you please turn back in your service sheets to page 9 and 10? So... We're starting uh, a new series today. For the next uh, about four weeks, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophet uh, Micah. And um, that first reading was uh, is a selection, a series of selections from the first two chapters of Micah. I really uh, encourage you to go and read Micah uh, beginning to end. It takes about 18 minutes. I've been doing it recently. That's generally how long it takes. Um, and I would encourage you to do that. We won't be able to read every single verse of Micah uh, in our services, um, but it's really worth doing. Um, let me begin with a little bit of an uncomfortable story. Uh, several weeks ago, I was uh, listening to a podcast. Um, actually, I was, I was painting the room I'm in right now. Um, and I'm listening to this podcast, and the pastor uh, who was leading this podcast, it was a podcast in part talking to other pastors, and he asked the question, he said, when was the last time your church preached through some of the minor prophets? That's a section of the Old Testament that Micah comes from. And when he asked this question, I kind of 
there was a little sting in my heart. And I wondered when was the last time that Emmanuel preached through uh, an Old Testament minor prophet. And so I went back and I looked at my records and it ends up, <laughs> we haven't done much of that. Um, very little. Um, it, it's not that we haven't preached at all in the minor prophets, but it's a little bit like a seasoning, but it's never been the main meal. And I thought to myself, hey, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder why that is. Why have we not preached, have I not preached in the Old Testament minor prophets very much? Um, and, and part of that, part of the answer to that could be just, hey, you know what? The Bible's a big book, takes a while to get around the neighborhood, right? There's plenty of the Bible that we have not preached. And yet when I thought about that way of answering the question, my, the sting in my heart didn't go away. And so I sat down one morning, it was actually a Sunday morning before church, and I opened up the book of Micah, and I read it beginning to end, 18 minutes, give it a go. And I realized that Micah scares me. The Lord in the book of Micah is ferocious. The Lord in the book of Micah is ferocious in pursuit of justice. And the Lord in the book of Micah is ferocious in opposing the injustice of Israel, his people. But yet at the same time, the Lord's ferocious judgment against his people, Israel, is also at the same time big with mercy without any contradiction. And as I read Micah, beginning to end, it cut to the heart and it startled me and frightened me at the same time. And it raised up a question for me. Could it be that part of the reason that we have not read material like Micah, could it be because there's part of Jim, perhaps, who is just frightened of, them, of their message, of the message of Micah and others? And I expect that that's possible. That might be part of it. And then I realized what a huge disaster that would cause for us. Because a book, of, a book like Micah, and Micah in particular, is designed to show us the beauty of the Lord's justice and mercy and how they go together without any contradiction. And yet if somebody like me is perhaps nervous of some of that message, and if somebody like me mutes that message, then there will be an aspect of Jesus's beauty that we will never see. And that is intolerable. But then there's more, because I also realized that if as a church, somehow we fail to see the beauty of Jesus's commitment to justice and mercy, then there's a terrible risk. And the terrible risk can include something like this. We might begin to decide that Jesus is really wonderful up to a point. We might begin to decide that Jesus is really, really great right up until it comes to the question of pursuing justice. It might be that we say, if we want to take justice seriously, then maybe we need to look somewhere else besides the Bible and besides the Lord of the Bible in order for us to understand what justice really means. And if we end up doing that, it will be a disaster, an intolerable disaster, because we will end up distancing ourselves from the God who invented justice and who implanted the desire for justice within the human heart. And that is just, I realize that's just an intolerable risk. So friends, we're gonna spend the next four weeks in Micah. And what I ask you to do is to come with me 
and look at the beauty of Jesus Christ in the pages of this prophet. And what I want to show you today is this, by way of introduction. The Lord's judgment against his people is severe. And it is big with mercy. And there is no contradiction there. All right. Come with me into the book. I need to set the stage. So uh, when Micah is writing, we're about 700 years before Jesus. But we're many centuries after the Exodus. So the kingdom of Israel has been an independent nation by this point for several hundred years. However, at the time that Micah is writing, it's a nation that is bitterly divided. The north of Israel and the south of Israel have split apart into two different kingdoms. The north retains the name Israel and its capital is Samaria. The south is called Judah and its capital is Jerusalem. Now, Micah is a prophet from the south. He's from Judah. And the perception in the south, in Judah, is that Israel in the north is hopelessly corrupt. The perception is by, from Judah in the south, looking north to Israel, is that they are religiously corrupt, they're politically corrupt. And from what we know, th that perception was accurate. It's a terribly divided nation. However, Part of what's striking as you come to Micah is that Micah the prophet comes not only, he is prophesying against the north, but he is also prophesying against the south. He comes to his own area, his own people, Judah in the south, and he says, wait, 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 not so fast. Judah, you're right that Samaria and the northern kingdom is terribly corrupt. However, you are no better. And in verse 2, on page 9, Micah says this, the Lord your God is coming as a witness against both of you, both northern Israel and southern Israel. Both of you together, the Lord is coming to you as a witness against you. In other words, the prophecy of Micah is a long indictment from God against the whole nation of Israel, north and south. And you need to see how striking this is. Because you need to imagine God going to court against his own people, Israel. Just think about this. This is the Lord who, we studied this a year ago. This is the Lord who had rescued Israel from Egypt. He had defeated hundreds of years before this in the origin story of Israel. He had defeated the greatest superpower of the day. He had rescued Israel from their slavery. He had fed them every day of 40 years in the desert. He gave them a new land. He gave them liberty and freedom. He had done all of that. But now, several hundred years later, we find that God is on one side, his people are on the other, and God is pressing charges against the whole nation of Israel. It's a striking image, but what's the charge? Turn over to chapter 2, this is on page 10, verse 8. It says this, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. Mark that word, enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly and with no thought of war. Now pause there. God says, Israel, both first Judah, but also the north, he says, Israel, you are not acting as my people. You are acting a lot more like my enemy. Now, in your mind, remember Pharaoh in the story of Exodus. 
Pharaoh is a great example of an enemy of God. And if you remember the story of Exodus, we talked about this a year ago, all through the story of Exodus, Pharaoh consistently prefers himself. And because Pharaoh consistently prefers himself, he's also constantly driven by his selfish desires. And because he's driven by his selfish desires, he ends up rejecting God and exploiting and using almost everyone around him. And he exploits the people around him in many ways, but one of the ways is he exploits them economically. Now keep that in your mind and look at Micah chapter two, verse one. Describing Israel, Micah says this, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, stay with me. Micah the prophet is talking about Israel. There's this dynamic of economic exploitation that's happening within Israel. However, you can hear in these verses echoes of that old enemy Pharaoh. Let me quote from a, a Bible scholar, uh, Bruce Walkey, one of the leading experts on Micah. He says this, let me just read it to you. The phrase in verse one about power strikes at the heart of the problem. Instead of trusting God, these powerful Israelites stand up as rivals to God and they behave as despots against their own people. Their absolute power gave unbridled expression to their depravity and covetousness. Motivated by greed and armed with an ethical principle that might is right, they schemed to plunder and defraud Israel's stalwart men of their fields and homes. In that agrarian economy, a person's life depended upon his fields. And for that reason, his inheritance was carefully guarded by the law. It was a sacred trust not just another piece of real estate. If a person lost his fields, at best he might become a day laborer, but at worst he might become a slave. In either case, he lost his independence, his freedom before God, and became dependent of the land barons. Now what I want you to see is that Mike is saying it's as if the Exodus is working backwards. It's as if these Israelites are acting like Pharaoh and they're leading other Israelites away from freedom that God had given them back towards slavery. And God, the God who liberated Israel from Egypt, God is furious. Look at chapter 2 verse 3. Thus says the Lord, behold, watch this, he says, Against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it shall be a time of disaster. Stay with me here. Do you remember the Exodus? God warned Pharaoh. He said, stop it. Stop exploiting my people and let them go. Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to do that. And therefore, God's judgment came down upon the whole nation of Egypt. And now, 
in Micah, God's judgment is coming down upon the whole family of Israel because of their leader's sin and the sinful systems that they had promoted. In this case, particularly in the economic sphere. See, one of the things about the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible is very consistent. God opposes injustice wherever he finds it, especially in people who claim to belong to him. And now, Emmanuel, does this make you nervous? It makes me nervous. And we need to remember something that I'm sure all of us agree with. Economic profit never justifies immoral action. And my guess is that all of us will agree with that. My guess is that almost everybody would officially agree with that. But yet, nevertheless, consider how the human heart is easily deceived, especially the human heart is easily deceived when, when we are in the middle of making money. I mean, you think about just obvious points in the history of our own nation. You know, how did we justify slavery? How did we justify things like the Trail of Tears and any number of other injustices? Well, one of the ways is that the human heart is easily deceived when we're making money. And of course, it's not just way back then in our distant past. In, in the early 2000s, I worked, at a, I worked in the subprime mortgage industry. Uh, there, there's one for confession. And do you know what? At the time, I honestly thought we were ethical. I tried to ask the right questions. But after the financial crisis, as I look back, I'm not so sure. I'm not so confident we were. The human heart is easily deceived when we're making money. That's true now. It was true in Micah's day. But the, Micah's message is that while the human heart is easily deceived, the Lord is never deceived. And Emmanuel, if that does not cause some fear in us, then I'm afraid we do not yet believe the God of the Bible. And that brings us back to Micah. Do you notice in our reading that Micah gets in trouble for his preaching? Did you catch that? That's chapter 2, verse 6. Take a look at it. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Grace, or disgrace, rather, will not overtake us. See, what happened is Micah preached that God opposes the injustice, even and especially of his people. But people didn't like that message. People didn't like Micah's preaching. They particularly didn't like talk about God's judgment. And apparently, from the rest of Micah, it appears that they had a theology that went something like this. They had a theology that said something like, God has rescued us from Egypt. God gave us a land flowing with milk and honey. God has a special plan for us. God wants our prosperity. Now, pause. Thus far, all that is true. And profit is not a problem in Micah or anywhere else. In fact, God's justice promotes flourishing, including economic flourishing. However, Israel in Micah's day apparently forgot or they had deleted the fact that Israel was not made to maximize profit. Israel was made for God's glory. 
And part of living for God's glory is living out and displaying the Lord's justice and the Lord's mercy. But they had deleted that bit. And by deleting that bit, they had invented a new religion that was all about themselves. They had invented a new religion that cuddled their selfish desires, just like Pharaoh. They had invented a new religion that turned covetousness into a virtue. They had invented a new religion that justified exploiting people. And they had invented a new religion that denied that God would ever stop them because they were God's people and God's always on their side. So of course they didn't like Micah and his preaching. Friends, false religion never wants to be told no. And now we're getting down to the heart of God's indictment against Israel and Micah. How had Israel turned into God's enemy? And the answer is that in their hearts, they had traded away God for false gods of their own imagination. Chapter 1, verse 7, we didn't read it, but it says that Israel had turned into idolaters. Now, we'll find out later in the book of Micah that they're still calling upon the name of the Lord. They're still invoking the Lord who had rescued them from Egypt. However, they had changed the truth about the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt. They had distorted him into a God who always said yes to them. They had distorted him into a genie who was chained to their own selfish desires. They They wanted to exploit God just like they had exploited other people. And Micah comes to them and says, do not be deceived. God's not going to play your game. In fact, your game ends not in your flourishing, but in your exile. Chapter 1, verse 16 says this. Micah says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for your children shall go from you into into exile. And that's what happened after Micah. The Babylonian Empire was already invading. Later on, the Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed the nations. Both nations fell, and a portion of the survivors were led off into exile in Babylon and other places. Now, take a deep breath. Can you see why this is a scary book? Now slow down with me. Because Micah shows us the severity of God's judgment. God is ferociously committed to justice. And his commitment to justice begins with his own people, Israel, today the church. But at the same time, Micah also teaches that God's justice is big with mercy, and there's no contradiction between the two. Now, what could that possibly mean? Well, take a deep breath and come with me. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we didn't read it. It's way further along in Micah. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we get Micah's thesis statement. And it says this, just listen. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, that's a perfect little description of what the Lord wants for his people. 
Israel in the Old Testament and the church today. But what I want you to notice is that the Lord, in saying that, the Lord wants his people to share his own character. He doesn't want his people to share the character of Pharaoh, his enemy. He wants his people to share the character that he has himself. Here's what I mean. God's goodness, his own character, his name in the Bible, it includes both his justice and his loving kindness or his mercy. And there's no contradiction between the two and God. And you can see that in the, book, in the story of Exodus, right? Remember? The Lord's justice and mercy, they're always there. The Lord looks at Pharaoh's Egypt with all its slavery and exploitation of Israel, and the Lord's soul hates it. And so he intervenes and he rescues Israel's, Israel from Egypt. And then the Lord spends years teaching Israel his law, that is, how they are to live together and treat each other with dignity and reflect God's character in how they relate to one another. In other words, God's justice is his action that intervenes to reorder disordered relationships so that these disordered relationships come back into an order that reflects God's own character. And his loving kindness or his mercy is God's inward grace that motivates him to bring about that reordering. Now, Micah 6.8 tells us that God wants Israel to be like that. To be, in a, here, let me say it this way. The Lord wants his people. He wants their goodness to be measured, not by their wealth, not by their uh, power plays, but by doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with their God. That's what the Lord wants. He wants his people to reflect his character. But here's the thing. As you read Micah, you think, oh God, if that's your vision for your people, then you failed. God, you failed if that's the vision for your people because Israel is nowhere near that. They're the opposite of that. They're a lot like Pharaoh. And some of us look at the church today and we think the same thing. Has God failed? Because sometimes it looks like the church is not at all like the Lord. Sometimes it looks like the church is more like Pharaoh. And if that's what comes up for you, then I get to say this. There's good news. Let me tell you the good news. God's justice and judgment is severe, but it is also big with mercy and there is no contradiction in it. Let me tell you the story. After Micah, the Lord sends Israel into exile and it looks like they're finished. They're just finished. God is finished with Israel. False. No, in chapter two, verse 12 of Micah, there's a happy little promise. The Lord promises to assemble the remnant of Israel in exile and to gather them like a sheep. Now, how does that happen? Well, it goes a little bit like this. When God sends Israel out into exile, there in Babylon and in other places, they begin to learn that the Lord is a Lord who's able to love even his enemies. That the same Lord who rescued them and liberated them from Egypt now promises to meet them even though they're his guilty enemies, he promises to meet them in the midst of their exile and to save them again. And so the Lord's kindness and love reaches out to Israel, his enemy, and begins to make them into a new kind of people. You ever heard of Daniel in the lion's den? Ever heard of Esther? Ever heard of Nehemiah? All of these are people who were in exile long after Nehemiah. 
And they're in exile. They become humbled by God's mercy that reaches out to them. And that mercy humbles them to a point where they begin to love and treasure the Lord's justice in a way that their ancestors had not done very often. And you can see this in both Daniel and Nehemiah. Both Daniel and Nehemiah end up confessing the corporate sins of Israel. Some of the sins that they confessed, they personally had not committed, but their ancestors had and the nations had because the Lord was, the Lord's mercy was breaking in on Israel in exile and creating a culture of repentance that valued justice. There's good news. And of course, now from our vantage point, we can look back and we can see that the Lord's mercy was just warming up. Because if you want to know how justice and mercy really unite without any contradiction, you got to look at Jesus. Did you catch the gospel reading? It's the story of Zacchaeus. Remember the short guy? And he is archetypal, unjust, bad Israelite. He, he's swindled people out of all kinds of things. He's exploited people, just like the, they were doing in Micah's day. Now, what does Jesus do with the worst of his nation? He does the same thing that the Lord did with Israel when they were in exile. Jesus goes out towards his enemy. He seeks him out like a lost sheep. Jesus loves his enemy to the point of having dinner with him, which was a scandal to some people. And what impact does Jesus's mercy have upon Zacchaeus? Well, the mercy of Jesus humbles him, humbles him to the point of repentance, which means self got dethroned from Zacchaeus's heart and his idols crashed and crumbled and he began to prefer the glory of God above himself. And that resulted in justice because instinctively Zacchaeus repays what it is he had defrauded. And Jesus, when he sees that, he points to everybody else and he says, look at Zacchaeus, he's a living sermon. That's what salvation looks like. That is the fruit of salvation, the union of justice and mercy. Jesus is ferocious against his injustice and big with mercy, with no contradiction. And the result of all that is someone transformed like Zacchaeus. And Emmanuel, I want you to know that that is the great accomplishment of Jesus upon the cross. When Jesus died and rose again, he died and rose again so that enemies, his enemies, even enemies that claim to be his own people, people like Zacchaeus could receive amnesty. But he did not die to give them amnesty so that they could just go on living in injustice. No, he died that they might have amnesty so that through that amnesty and that pardon, they could be transformed by repentance and turn into people who do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with Christ. And not only that, Jesus' death and resurrection also brings dignity and proves how much God cares for the oppressed. Jesus on the cross means that God will never forget the oppressed, at least because he became one of them in the person of Christ. And therefore, if your heart beats with, with the burning question, what does God care for the oppressed? Then look at Jesus upon the cross and you will see a God whose heart is greater than any other view of God that is out on offer. His heart is big in love for those who have been exploited. But then finally, the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ also means that one day Jesus will come again to judge the world. 
And that means if we will not have Jesus as our savior, we will most definitely face him as our judge. And that should make us tremble. Both within the church and outside it. And it should make us hope. Because it tells us that in the end, the Lord's justice will win. And so, Emmanuel, what I'm trying to tell you is this. You will never find a greater vision of justice than you will in Jesus Christ, in the Lord of the Holy Scriptures. Because in the Lord, you find someone who is ferocious against injustice and big with mercy without any contradiction. And Jesus wants to make us at Emmanuel a people who share in his own goodness. A people who do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And that's where Micah wants to take us. So over the next few weeks, Micah's going to hold up a mirror for us and it's going to be tarred. He's going to hold up a mirror for the church. He's going to hold up a mirror for our own souls. He's going to hold up a mirror for our nation. And we're going to look at that mirror and we're going to see that sometimes we look a lot like Pharaoh and that should make us tremble. Let it make you tremble. And at the same time, see that the Lord's severity is big with mercy. Because the Lord wants to use Micah to make us like Zacchaeus. And so will you consent to that work? Will you ask God to pour out his spirit upon us? Will you ask the Lord to humble us by his mercy so that we end up treasuring his justice and we become wise to recognize what his justice looks like? And will you ask him to make us a people who love justice and do mercy and love kindness and walk humbly with our God? Amen? Amen.